this combination of gun violence and anti-Asian hate, which is, of course, rising in, in these days and age, is a very dangerous uh, combination for our people. It's a priority both ways, as a policy priority, but also as a community-wide priority. Hello, this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My returning guest today is Tung Nguyen, chair of the AAPI Victory Alliance and of Pivot, a group that works to engage and empower Vietnamese Americans for a just and diverse America. Tung is a doctor and a professor of medicine. Uh, you should listen to my previous interview with him in 2018 for his very compelling biography. This year, we caught up about what he's been doing in the world of politics since 2018 with Pivot and with the Victory Alliance. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Tung Nguyen of the AAPI Victory Alliance. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Tung, welcome back to the show. It's actually been about four years since we chatted. And at the time, you were working on uh, Pivot and the AAPI Progressive Action, but those were fairly new. Would you mind first just catching me up on what you've been up to in the area of politics with those organizations and others since then? Sure. Thanks, Nathaniel, for having me back on. <laughs> I do remember because that was early uh, in the days and we were so happy to get our, our messages out. Let's start with API uh, Progressive Action. The first big thing is that since then we changed our name. <laughs> we're now API Victory Alliance, but we're still doing the same work. And I think we've gotten a lot of traction. Four years ago, we were just starting the organization and building out our reputation and some of uh, identifying some of our work. Four years later, I think, uh, as you're well aware, uh, the 2018 election, the 2020 election, we contributed to the API voter base coming out and helping elect a lot of people, in particular activities that we had in the swing states, including in the Georgia special elections. We were part of a, a bunch of people, obviously, but I think we did a lot in helping that. Um, and then we are really building out now, we've gotten some more funding to build out our infrastructures. So we are pursuing our biggest goal, sort of biggest infrastructural goal, which is to create a network or organize a network of 501c4 nonprofits working on API issues in various states. Um, there are already a few more now than there were even in 2018, um, but we want to help coordinate them and, and sort of have a national coordination uh, activities. And then for 2022, obviously, we need to fight and keep the gains that we had, and for democracy. 
on Pivot, the progressive Vietnamese American organization, similar trend of growth uh, and recognition. We've actually taken out some pretty strong area in addition to the things that I've talked about in terms of elections and things. Misinformation has been a big issue that we've identified and addressed. And I think among all the API population, Pivot and the Vietnamese groups uh, have really been leading how to counteract that in both English and Vietnamese. So, so how much has the, the AAPI part of the progressive ecosystem grown or matured since we talked four years ago? Oh, amazingly so. I mean, I, and I think I think that was one of the few positive things that's come out in the last four years is um, the recognition that we needed to activate uh, in the political space. So a bunch of 501c4 uh, now that there, were, there wasn't any before. There's one in Georgia, there's one in Arizona, there's one in Pennsylvania. We're starting one uh, or helping to start one in Texas. We're planning to start one in Florida. So a lot of the you know so-called swing states is we're not surprised when we see a lot more political activism in states with high population of APIs like California and other places like that. But it's actually the the states that has fewer Asian Americans that are actually uh, activating. So I think overall, I think it's grown by leaps and bounds. How does it compare to what's happening on the Republican conservative side as far as their organizing and their institutions? Well, I would say that um, as far as API exclusive organizations, I don't think there has been as much growth there on the Republican side. But the Republican National Committee has done a, a, a very strong job of organizing API voters who are conservative within their own rubric rather than relying on community organizations to do it. I do think that that is a, a systematic issue that the, our side needs to think about. And, and that it turns out to be that these priority populations, we often have to basically bootstrap ourselves, right? So API populations in particular, if we want things done both to help all candidates, but in particular in policies, but also to help our own candidates and our own policies, we have to create our own organizations. That, that's just how it goes. And we have to go out, get funding and support and etc. Whereas I think the Republicans uh, are much more structural about the whole thing. They identify the strategy and they go in there and they'll work with organizations that's already there. And if organization is not already there, they'll throw some more money at it <laughs> and, and try to get it to go. I think that the, the Democratic side has not been as intentional. Uh, at least the Democratic establishment hasn't been as intentional about this work. Do you have communications with the DNC or with the super PACs on the independent side, or how much do they incorporate you into their thinking or actions in this area? Well, it's always a, a constant pushback and, and you know, push and pull argument, right? So we're constantly saying, you got to pay attention more to us. Uh, and we have data that suggests that elections are won on the margin. <laughs> and API is one of those huge margin, actually, in, in many of the swing states and many elections. I think they may or may not get it, but they're certainly not making the investments. <laughs> so, uh, uh, and I don't know, I don't, I'm don't. i not inside enough to understand what the back and forth of that is. We do have friends uh, in some of these organizations and they do try to help us. But from an organizational perspective, I don't think they all have gotten around to, to doing this. And I think that's probably not an unusual situation for Navy communities of color, but I think for APIs in particular, it's been very acute.
Is do you think that they found other organizations in the AAPI world, or is just true across the board? I think it's true across the board, and I think if you talk to other AAPI organizations, they'll all say that we're underfunded as a whole. <laughs> so, how big have you guys gotten? How what's the ballpark of what you raise and spend across the? You know, we're about near you know seven seven figures territories. <laughs> and, you know, for what we do and what we've done with a lot less, um, that's actually a major milestone. Um, for us, it's always been also the idea of when does the money come, not just how much. So, you know, that the classic thing is that the, the big money flow in the last two or three months of an election cycle, that only works if you have a, an infrastructure that can take it. <laughs> uh, if you know what I'm talking about, like if you don't have a, a sustained infrastructure and you throw all that money at it, You'll spend it, but you won't be able to get the maximum value out of it. So what we're trying to do is get people to invest early into, you know, building the relationship and the organization that we need. You know, API is, you know, if you can imagine trying to reach out to one community that speaks one language, right? And all the distrust that goes along with it. If, if you're, and that alone will take years, right? <laughs> but if you're trying to do it with a with a population that's like 30 different country of origins and, you know, 100 or more languages, you're going to need to put a lot more time and energy in building those relationships. And the last month of the election coming in and throwing money at it isn't, isn't going to get the, the impact that you need. It seems uh, a little alarming to me that that it's still at that scale, even after the amount of work you've been putting in. I know that there was a billion dollars or more went into an Asian American organization recently that Sonal Shah was part of starting. What that's not really in politics, though. But there's a there's so many prosperous people in in the various communities. Why do you think it's being overlooked, uh, not just by the DNC, but also in other ways? Yeah. So so uh, this is a complicated issue. The, the Asian American Foundation, which you mentioned, was actually started by a bunch of uh, well-to-do Asians <laughs> to address anti-Asian hate, right? So again, even though it's a billion dollars, it's a bit of a bootstrapping operation, right? Because it's APIs working for APIs, you know? And and, and that's fine. That That's the way it should be uh, in, in many instances. But from my point of view, we're not talking about only the benefit for Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. We're talking about the entire country's, you know, political policies and system, right? So, so if I were a non-Asian person and I was looking to invest, I would look at whatever area that I think is most return for my my investment, right? I don't think people are thinking it that way yet. And I part of that is because I don't know Asian American Pacific Islanders. They don't understand us. They don't know the data, uh, and so they keep giving to. I think you know, places and people that they know and trust. And um, they just need to open their minds up a little bit more. I think the Asian American population is making an investment. We're all making an investment. But for us, the big issue is that politics is a new area, right? So that's why you see a billion dollars going into TAF, which is a 501c3 organization. So they do engagement and education and advocacy, but not in a partisan way, right? We face that barrier too, that even our own donors are going to take their time to begin to understand that uh, elections matter <laughs> for what they care about. So. Are they able to fund you? Would they? I mean, I know they do some granting, but is that only to other 501c3s? Yeah, I'm pretty sure TAF is not thinking about funding 501c4s, but uh, I, I think we've had some conversation 
they're not ready to go there yet because also their donors are also from different political uh, backgrounds too. And I, I understand that. So I'm glad you're doing what you're doing. I understand that, that one of the areas that you're currently working on has to do with gun violence. Is that right? Yes. Tell me a little about what you're up to. Yeah. So, you know, first a little bit of background APIs in particular, uh, uh, are in favor of, you know, some kind of gun control. <laughs> we don't have a lot of data, but the data that we got from API data, uh, which is a data organizing group, uh, thinks that about 70% of Asian Americans in general support better or stricter gun control. And when you disaggregate them by different Asian groups like Chinese, Vietnamese, Filipinos, and, and so on and so forth, that's a pretty consistent you know, proportion. So that's number one is a priority for our, our, our community. Uh, second of all, we are highly affected by gun violence, right? So people actually don't know or remember that in 1989, one of the first huge uh, mass school shooting in America occurred in Stockton, California, near where I live now, actually. And the, most of the victims were Southeast Asian elementary students. We were actually probably one of the harbinger of the school shooting epidemic that we see. And of course, then, you know, there was a huge mass shooting in Wisconsin, Oak Creek, Wisconsin in 2012 at the Gawara. And then more recently, the Atlanta spa shootings and the Sikh murders in Indianapolis. Okay. So this combination of gun violence and anti-Asian hate, which is of course rising in in these days and age, is a very dangerous uh, combination for our people. It's a priority both ways as a policy priority, but also as a community-wide priority. And then the last sort of area of priorities there is that uh, worsening mental health uh, obviously, guns uh, have a lot to do with suicide, um, particularly among API youth. So overall, we feel like this is a a huge issue, both for the population and also in terms of getting them out to vote. So uh, our main work right now is with trying to obviously getting more information and education out there about you know what we can do to mitigate the harms of guns and what to do on a policy level uh, to advocate for uh, more stricter gun control. How does that fit into the general mission? How do you decide what initiatives you launch? And are there other ones or is this the main one? How do you fit that into what you're trying to do? Because it's such an ambitious uh, thing that you're up to. I do think that we try to identify our policy priorities based on what our communities care about, but, but also what what affects our communities, right? So most of the time that's a line, right? What our community cares about and what affects us are the same. And sometimes it isn't. (laughs) And if it isn't, then we have to sort of figure out a way to make that argument to our communities. But, you know, we look at, again, the positive data is there. And actually one of our priority is to get better data on APIs. I mean, again, API data does a great job, but they have limited resources. And so almost everything that we do nowadays comes out of their work. And we're thinking that's just not, not enough data coming out. We created a think tank, quote unquote. And, uh, and the think tank's goal is to figure out what the data gathering landscape is and how can we improve that and address them specifically for policies, right? So, uh, and I think we, we're like going to be the first national API think tank that's progressive oriented. So so that's one other thing we're doing. But once we have the data, then we just go with that. So what are some of the things that matters to our population based on the data that we have? Climate change, gun control, the economy are, are some of the bigger ones. We also think that voters' rights and democracy is a threat now. So we prioritize that a lot. Um, you know, as you know, this 2022 election is going to be crucial because 
many Secretary of State races are being decided. That's the one that I think a lot of people are not talking about as much. But the Secretary of State has a lot to say about what the election outcomes are, as we saw in the 2020 election. Uh, and so democracy is at risk, and we want to be working on that issue as well. So. The work you did in 2018 and 2020 was in a generally favorable political climate for Democrats and progressives. The lead up to 2022 so far is vastly different and highly concerning. The same need to oust the people in power, but to try to retain it. And if not to stem the losses in the state legislatures, in the Congress, et cetera. In the AAPI community, do you feel the same drag to the right that other people are feeling? Yes, absolutely. Uh, um, first of all, the most important to remember AAPI voters is that we're not as bipartisan or, or divided into two parties as a lot of other voters are. In other words, there's a lot of Republicans, a lot of Democrats, but there's lots of independents. So for us, whenever there's a swing back and forth, uh, it's a huge swing. <laughs> so I think I think we're actually even more susceptible to this than, than, say, for example, Black or Latinx communities, because they are so much more have a propensity to go Democrats to begin with, right? Uh, we're not. Uh, APIs are not, partly because I think a lot of us are more recent than maybe first or second generation. We don't have a family commitment to any party or historical commitment to any party. But we also, you know, I think uh, look at politics differently. I think we do look at it in terms of, you know, who's doing what for us, right? So, um, and and the problem with that, though, is that there's a lot of misinformation out there right now. So, so and, and also there's a lot of what I call um, sort of lumping of priorities. So if you have a special interest that you care about, that one party is for, you often will ignore or lump it with other priorities. Our goal, first of all, is to make sure the, the correct information is out there, right? So if someone's concerned about the economy, let's get the right information out there. Now, what what exactly has happened with the economy? Where is it bad? Where is it good? What part of it is the Biden administration responsible for, good and bad, you know? And what part of it they're not responsible for? Uh, when it comes to things like, you know, immigrant rights, let them know exactly uh, where things stand. And same thing with gun control. I think the same issue. Like, you know, which party, if you care about gun control, which party is really doing the best job, better stricter gun control? Well, you know, it's pretty clear that it's the Democrats and we're going to want to make sure that people know that, right? So our job is mostly to do the education, some persuasion, I think, some persuasion too, because sometimes, for example, uh, education and affirmative action has been a, a huge issue that actually splits um, uh, Asian Americans in particular from the rest of the people of color coalition. And we need to educate them or, or, or uh, let them know that affirmative action doesn't necessarily harm them. And it is a wedge issue to separate us from the rest of the coalition so that they can think about that in the, the way that's going to be best for them. Yeah, I was talking to a friend of mine who's Asian recently, and she was pretty fired up about affirmative action in the elite schools and some of these lawsuits. And it seemed to be dragging her away from the Democratic Party. And it was very concerning to me, that conversation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that framing is actually, for me, I think education and economy, right? Now, that's probably true for most communities, but I think for Asian communities in particular, if you're not messaging economy and education properly, you're going to lose a lot of people. In terms of education, you know, um, obviously the, the the you know not too many people go to elite institution no matter what. But 
the idea that they their kids can't access those institutions, even if they never were going to go there in the first place, feels wrong, right? It feels very anti-Asian. <laughs> and I think it's, it appeals at an emotional level. What we're trying to do is get people to see that that's a splitting uh, political strategy uh, by opposing Asian Americans against other people of color, while the benefits accrue to white people, right? So so when, when we're fighting over affirmative action, it's not that every black person who gets admitted means an, an Asian person doesn't get in. <laughs> it means that every Asian person who doesn't get in means another white person gets in. You know, that's the kind of messaging that I think we need to be making. So, I mean, it's kind of ironic because Asian Americans are well and maybe even overrepresented in those institutions on account of working awfully hard to to excel in school, right? Well, yeah, no, and I think that's exactly what drives that emotional response, right? We're doing the best we can. We value education, and, and we're meeting all the rules, quote-unquote, that you all put up, and somehow we're not getting in, right? That's That underlies that frustration. But I don't think that's sort of what we call the myth of meritocracy, right? We A lot of Asians are completely bought into the myth of meritocracy, and I don't blame them for feeling frustrated when they, they are doing what they said that we were told we were supposed to do and not achieving the results. But what we're trying to ask them to do is look underneath that. You know, what is underlying all of this? If you uh, had the ear of some of the people spending the most money on the progressive side and democratic side, and you could alter priorities, what would you suggest be changed? I think like most progressive uh, people of color, I, I think uh, the, the the point that we always make, and I make this in all my aspect of my work, both political and health and research and everything, is that where, now, first of all, investing in diversity is not a lost leader. <laughs> in, investing in diversity is actually investing in the best possible outcome. It always is. Okay. So uh, people think about diversity as an extra. You you invest in diverse community as an extra, uh, whatever your outcomes are. I argue the other way, that that's, if things are turning on the margin for you to achieve your outcome, you have to invest in diverse communities. I just don't understand someone who's successful economically or business-wise not thinking that way. And the reason why I think they don't think that way is they're just not (laughs) well-informed. Because once the people like that are well-informed, I think they will make the appropriate investment. Um, But, you know, our, our, our goal is to continually hammer home the point that we are not winning elections if APIs aren't swinging the vote in many states. And more states now than before. If there are some of these wedge issues, like ones we've mentioned, that are cutting the wrong way, what are the things that uh, ought to be heard by the constituency you want to talk to that will move them in a progressive direction? Well, it's both messaging and, and media. The messages have to be, we have to figure out what the right way to message these things are, right? So I think the right has done a better job because their messages are pretty clean. <laughs> they're, they're, they're clean, easy to understand, even if they're wrong. <laughs> Whereas ours, because we tend to be more you know, nuanced in our, our thinking, our messages tend to be a little bit more nuanced and, and harder to, to figure out. So from my perspective, we need, we need more data on which, which kind of messaging will work, number one. But the other thing that's really important is if you have the right messaging, but you're not delivering it through channels where the communities are accessing it, 
then then it's not going anywhere, right? So so a lot of the you know um, sort of the general trend is younger APIs are more progressive, and so these messages, uh, these these kind of wedge issues tend to swing in the right direction for us, but they tend to vote less, right? They have a slower propensity to vote. The group that has a higher propensity to vote are the older APIs, uh, many of whom may not communicate entirely in English. And so if we want to reach them, we got to message them not just in English and in mainstream media or whatever that people spend hundreds of millions of dollars on in their election campaigns, but actually spend a few thousand dollars in smaller media chunks where there are a lot of more of these people. (laughs) You know, that's the other thing about efficiency that doesn't make sense to me is you hear about campaigns spending millions and millions of dollars, but you don't see it being spent in, in ethnic media. You don't see it spent on uh, social media that's directed towards certain ethnic groups. Uh, our work with Pivot in particular, with our, our, our vietfactcheck.org uh, work, which is bilingual English and Vietnamese, we've learned a lot about how to target you know, short, punchy, persuasive messages to people who are bilingual, bicultural, or even monolingual, monocultural, non-English speaking through social media. We've learned a lot. And we haven't inve- we don't have that much money. And I'm thinking that if we even made a small investment in how to do this and understanding how to do this, we're going to make a huge success. I've uh, tracked a few media organizations or online groups that have been created in the there's a couple in the African-American community. There's some in the Hispanic community that have found a way to build a pretty sizable audience in their areas. Is there anything like that in the AAPI world that is maybe talking to Asians generally, but also you know, finding a way to bring political messages alongside? Well, you know, like I said, in particular, Pivot has done a good job of this relative to its size and investment uh, among the Vietnamese American community. We're like right now recognized as the premier national progressive Vietnamese American organization. People come to us to get messages out. People who are non-Asian come to us to get messages out to the Vietnamese community. We hope that API uh, Victory Alliance will become that for uh, the rest of the Asian Americans. You know, there are places where you go get good information about Asian Americans for specific topics like civil rights and immigrant rights and uh, racism and for health, various different things. But they don't take the same approach we do, which is thinking about it politically. <laughs> they're in it for information and things like that, but not. I, I don't think they're thinking about it strategically. Um, uh, so. so is the gun control push that you've mentioned an effort to find an issue that cuts the other way, that your audience will see through a progressive lens and take people that direction. Sure. I mean, I think that that is part of the point about we were saying about single issue versus multiple issues, right? So I don't think about the API electorate right, as a sort of a monolithic group at all, right? So you can think about them as, you know, there are these people for whom affirmative action is really the only issue they'll work on, right? So, so that matters when they vote. And if that's the case, then you are going to have to make a good argument on affirmative action. But there are people who, for whom there are multiple things are at play here. And so we're going to have to find different ways of messaging for each of those groups. And so I think gun control is one. I think for us, linking gun control to anti-Asian hate is huge because anti-Asian hate really drives a lot of things in API communities right now. I think there's a huge fear. It's, it's a personal thing, right? It's, it's existential, right? 
it's food and, and, and safety, right? So economy and safety, you know? Uh, and so we think that they are related. And that's why I think we want to link the two. So there are those who care about gun control there, but many more care about anti-Asian hate. And we want to link that. Same thing with climate change. You know, I mean, there's, you know, there are other kinds of messaging, uh, but we have to do both. We have to do uh, the areas where people are sort of more vulnerable. How does the immigration issue work in your world? I mean, it's it's interesting that some recent immigrant communities are more receptive to people continuing to come here legally and even illegally than others. That's a really good question. Uh, there's a lot of heterogeneity, <laughs> and 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 in, in addition, in API, there's some things that are some things that are counterintuitive too. So, so first of all, you know. Everybody, everybody who's outside of the API community, and even many people who are progressive inside the API community, thinks that immigrant immigration is a huge driver of votes. Uh, I'm not convinced that it is. <laughs> I mean, it is a driver of votes, but it's not one of the top couple. <laughs> because why? Because we are, you know, we have people who have lived here for four generations and people who just came here. So that's number one. Is is I think we should play on it. We should, you know, work on it. We should, you know live by our principles on it, just like the Latino, Latinx population. You can't rely on immigrants. immigration as the driving factor because there are so many other things that these populations care about. The other thing that's very interesting is that more recent immigrants may actually tend to be more conservative-leaning. <laughs> and, and so that's weird, right? So, so, so why is that? I don't know the exact answer, but I have some guesses, You know, one of which is that uh, just because you're here doesn't mean you want everyone else to come here. That's sort of a selfish way of looking at things. Uh, a second way is that many of them come from cultures and governments that are much more restrictive. And so for them, uh, you know, more um, uh, restriction on voters, right, isn't something that, wor- that worries them that much, for example, right? So, so that's two. And number three, this whole education thing is really key for a lot of Asian immigrants. Uh, they want their kids to have the best opportunity. And if they... Uh, the, combining that with the lack of understanding of Asian American history and how we got to be where we are, that combination of I want the best for my kids, I see these things that's hurting my kids, but not understanding how that got there to be that stage, uh, they react. And so they're much more easily swayed uh, to the rights agenda. The immigration is a very complex issue for this population. Yeah, I, I remember learning about a friend's mother who is not highly politically aware, reads a Chinese newspaper and got very alarmed during the 2018 midterm about the supposed caravans of people coming up from Mexico. And that, that really made her feel restrictive about immigration, even though it hadn't been that many, you know, 50 years or so since she had made her way here. That's not uncommon at all. And, And of course, you know, the other thing is that, and to be fair, you know, a lot of these people live in very homogeneous countries, right? And so they come to this country and they're not used to the diversity here. And they may very well think, you know, for example, you could be a Chinese immigrant and think, well, there should be more Chinese immigrants, but you, there should be more, you know, other countries' immigrants, you know? And it's, it's consistent within their own mind, right? It's not inconsistent. So. Or you want rich, educated immigrants, but you don't want poor immigrants from anywhere. Absolutely. Or, yeah. Know. So I think, again, you know, looking at immigration for any community uh, broadly, I don't think it's helpful. What are you 
spending your time on in the run-up to 2022? What's occupying you politically? Well, I, I, think, I think like everyone else, we're focused on places where we can make a difference. I think we're in a lot of trouble in the Senate races. We're in a lot of trouble in the House races. Uh, we're in a lot of trouble in some of the Secretary of State races, which, like I said, is really uh, a priority area. Uh, again, because we have limited resources, we have to confine ourselves to places where we think we can make the most difference. So number one, uh, obviously, swing states for the Senate, swing district where there are lots of APIs for whom if we put in the work in, that things will uh, improve. And then we have a bunch of candidates that we endorse that we really like that we obviously want to help. You know, for example, Georgia is a huge state for us, number one, because of the Senate race there. Number two, because of the Secretary of State race there, as you remember, the 2020 election swung a little bit on what the Secretary of State in Georgia wanted. <laughs> and what the added thing for us there is being Wynn, who is running, he's probably the Democratic Party's nominee for the Secretary of State, is Asian. So for us, that's a double, like that's the kind of prioritization that we make is if we put a lot of effort in Georgia, we impact a Senate race, we impact the Secretary of State race. And so that's how we're thinking about a lot of these other races as well. So The way... I think about it, and this is probably well away from the average citizen, is that in a lot of ways, our democracy itself is on the ballot in the next couple elections, as it has been for a bit, and that we really run the risk of backsliding or moving towards a more authoritarian system, one where uh, the, the right wing of the Republican Party is trying to use the rules to hold itself into power and is willing to use misinformation and all kinds of other unsavory techniques to gain and hold power. Is that a reality, something that is, that's finding reception in the API world? I think certainly the younger APIs get this. I think the older APIs don't. And I, like I said, you know, I think for a lot of APIs, democracy isn't built in, <laughs> particularly for more recent immigrants. But I do think, I totally agree with you. I, I, I think our democracy is at risk. Um, and it's even scarier because in a non-presidential election year, there'll be a lower turnout and people are not just not paying attention. They don't think it's that important. It's, it's our job to rev up that, 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 that fear because it's a real fear, Right. Let's just assume for a second the trend that we've been seeing will be true, which is there's going to be a lot of, you know, um, states where there, there there's no contest, <laughs> and there's going to be a few states where for which there's, you know, always going to be contested. If they control the election mechanism in the state where things are going to be contested, then they have a lot to say about overturning just even electoral outcomes, right? So so that that in itself is pretty scary concept. We're not even talking about subtle influencing. We're just talking about invalidating or delegitimizing election outcomes. And they are more than telegraphing that they're after that. Oh, yeah. No, no. This is why their strategy is to win the Secretary of State. Why would you want to win the Secretary of State? I mean, in, in many years past, nobody cared who the Secretary of State was. <laughs> I, I hardly knew who the Secretary of State in California was. But now everybody sees that who controls the election and the election decisions uh, often will control the election outcomes. You know, and you, and, and you had a president yelling that he got cheated and concocting a plan to try to overturn it as, which is now a dry run for the next time. 
Absolutely. And I think it's quite ironic, maybe, that, that the people who complain about subverted election are actually the people who are planning for subverted election. I mean, that that's just, I, I think they're learning. Uh, and I actually, you know, I watched the, the mainstream Republicans shift more and more to this radicalized right way of seeing things. And, and, and while the radicalized right, I think, feel that they're right. In other words, I really believe that he, he the election was stolen from him. The mainstream Republicans obviously don't believe that, but they see this as an opportunity for them to win contested elections later. And that's what they're going to do. I mean, there are some people who view the Republican Party as having been taken over by sort of a white Christian radical subset. But they are also in some ways kind of pragmatic in that they will try to persuade some minorities to vote along with them. Do you think there's place in a Republican-led America for the AAPI community to exist happily? So, so let me just take a historical perspective on this. Every single political party has always done that <laughs> with minority populations, right? They try to convince us that their cause is the right cause, <laughs> right? Uh, and then once we give them that power, then they do whatever they want to us. Um, I'm going to be very cynical about that. So this is not a new trend to me, but this is very acute now because I actually do think you're right that they're not quiet about it or subtle about it or um, uh, about it anymore. They're, they they really do want you know a white led uh, society. But they want to. They know that they can't do that unless they involve some minorities on their side, right? The, the, the demographics distribution is such that if you only appeal to even only white people, you can't win elections, much less only right-wing Christian people, you know? So they have to find those areas where their interests overlap with the minority interests. And that's exactly, you know, some of the things that we talked about, whether it's religion, whether it's women's rights, LGBTQ rights, whether it's immigrant rights, whether it's economy, whether it's education, they're going to find those areas where they'll pick off, you know, enough minorities that will get them elected and in power. And then once they're in, they'll do whatever they want to the minorities. Is there a question that I haven't asked you that I should have? One of the things that I think we should at least uh, think about is uh, number one, how do the API populations or, or activists in the progressive space link to other people of color? Uh, I think about this a lot because divide and conquer is a classic strategy for for millennia, right? And the other side is always going to divide and conquer. And the question from us is, do we divide or do we unite? And where do we unite? It's a very hard thing as a minority person to think about how do I combine with another minority group, even if my own values or interests may not be upfront in that coalition building process. In other words, am I willing to sacrifice some things for something bigger? <laughs> and I, I actually think that until we figure that out, uh, we're going to be in trouble, number one. And number two, I think that we have to convince white people particularly white people who are well-meaning and progressive, but who haven't been thinking about people of color spaces to engage in that coalition building process too. Do you think the, the war, Russia invading Ukraine and 
the way that that has kind of mobilized a authoritarian system versus a democratic system cleavage around the world is going to play into our elections in your community? As a sort of a researcher kind of person, I would the answer to the question that is, of course, I don't know because I haven't seen any polling on this, <laughs> which, you know, I mean, like, that's a very good question, actually. You know, uh, everybody seems to care about the Ukraine at some point, And I just don't know what people of color think about this. <laughs> right. So, I mean, a couple of times you've mentioned really wanting to pursue more research and data and conclusions. What would it take to get you to where you want to be on that front? So our, our partner, we have we have basically a, a little bit of a constellation of organization, but between our super PAC, the API Victory Fund and 501c4 API Victory Alliance, we think that an investment of about $2 million to $3 million in API data collection will help us a long way uh, toward answering some of these questions. So actually, we are going to launch through this network some data collection in the next few months. We've gotten some money to do some polling, at least in some of the swing states. So you know, the idea of nationally polling all representative Asian Americans, <laughs> it's very daunting because like I said, the over a hundred languages and et cetera, et cetera. But, but I think we're gonna start with a very smaller effort, looking at some swing states, looking at their voter rolls, for example, cleaning up their voter rolls. Because again, you know, if you don't know who you're reaching, you don't know how to reach them. And then getting some data back via surveys and so on and so forth to find out what they care about and, and more importantly, what messages uh, resonate with them. So we're in this world where, particularly in the COVID world, where we're talking about scientifically shown data versus people just you know willy-nilly believing what they want to believe in, right? We can't approach elections the same way, right? I mean, we have to have data uh, and also, you know, what kind of messages work? I, I'm sitting here telling you a lot of things, some of which is based on data and some of which is based on opinions. And I'd rather have it a little bit based on opinions as possible if we're talking about the fate of democracy. <laughs> so, and and you can't get data without money. And I, I actually feel like people underestimate like how much it costs to collect good data on minority populations and particularly ones as heterogeneous as Asian Americans. Wow, I really hope you you find that money and find that uh, those kind of partners because we're getting late in the game for the for the upcoming elections and we need all the help we can get. Yeah, well, we're trying to raise hundreds of thousands of dollars, but we'll take anything <laughs> so that we can actually do the work. So if your friend, your listeners are willing to, you know, reach out to us, uh, apivictoryalliance.org or apivictoryfund.org, I think we can really do something. You know, I think uh, this is not about Asian Americans. I mean, to, I'm just going to be very blunt here. You may not care at all about Asian Americans, but if you care about the fate of democracy and not investing in Asian American political work, you may actually be working against your own interests. Well, that seems like a sobering note on which to maybe end. Is there anything else you want to say? Yeah, I am optimistic in our democracy. I am proud of the work that we've all been doing together, and we will overcome this too. But we have to work at it and be very strategic and scientific-driven. Tung, thank you so much for taking the time. That was Tung Nguyen. He's at pivotnetwork.org. 
This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.